0: Yes. All right. Um, Hi, everyone. I'm Pastor Brendan. I'm delighted to be here. If you know me, then a regular welcome to you. If you don't know me, then a special welcome to you. Um, Tonight we're talking about baptism because this is our Baptism Sunday. It rocks up every couple of months. Um, There's no actual baptisms tonight, as we talked about. We had a couple earlier this morning, and that's uh, something worth praising God about. But when we have a Baptism Sunday, we like to highlight baptism and um, what it means to us, and that's probably a useful thing to do since we are Baptists. and it feels like neglecting that is probably missing something important. So we're going to talk about why do we bother with baptism at all, um, and we'll walk through the wonderful world of baptism. You will actually, you'll actually you'll be delighted to hear the stuff that I'm going to tell you about. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about why we still bother with baptism. Father God. Uh, We thank you for your word and we thank you for the ordinances you give us, the things that we can do to please you. Um, We ask tonight that you open up your word to our hearts and open up our hearts to your word. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. The Catholic Church is called the Catholic Church because the term Catholic means all encompassing, uh, widely embracing the one to which all the members belong, historically Uh, This meant that if you weren't in the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church did not recognize you as being in the Church at all. And Protestants weren't terribly kind in return. Uh, Protestants are called Protestants because they protested this idea of the Catholic Church being the one true Church, being the all-encompassing Church of Jesus Christ. It's all in the names there, nicely spelled out for us. Catholic Church says, We are all the church there is. Protestant movement says, No, you're not. Similarly, Pentecostals are named after the event of Pentecost and their uniquely uh, intense belief in the way the Holy Spirit falls on believers, as it did um, in the festival of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, with a powerful experience and speaking with tongues and a very um, experiential sensation. Now, Presbyterians are called Presbyterians because the Greek word presbyteros means elder, and Presbyterian churches are governed by their councils of elders at varying levels. Uniting churches are called uniting churches because they came out of an attempt to unite several denominations into a singular one, and a general view that the church needs to be more about bringing people in and less about defining them out. So why are Baptist churches called Baptist churches? It's not because we baptize, because almost every church baptizes it's not because of some particular way we baptize because Baptist churches don't perform anything unique in the way we baptize that isn't not replicated in some other church in some way and um, honestly we tend to think of baptism as a little bit less important than most denominations do and the idea that Baptist churches are called Baptist churches because of an unbroken sequence of uh, followers of Jesus since John the Baptist is cute but not really historically sustainable there are plenty of folks in churches perhaps even in our church that aren't baptized and a baptist church cannot scare you into the water with threats of hellfire like some churches in other denominations can we can't give you a little dip when you're too young to protest and then um, or do it quickly with a little spritz of water and be done with it we insist on having the whole song and dance about it, the full immersion requiring to be dunked head to toe we don't think baptism saves or that it is mandatory to be part of a church community and honestly when you think about it starting to seem like more trouble than it's worth and when Paul says we were buried with Jesus through baptism into death he's obviously talking metaphorically and we get that metaphor message received so why every couple of months do we blow out our service times And force Peter or Kev or Amelia to fill up the baptistry for us. And remember to put the heater in the water like John the Baptist no doubt would have wanted. Why go to all this trouble? And that seems to be something worth thinking about. So tonight we're going to have a tour of baptism. If you're not baptized and you're wondering if and why you should, then this is particularly for you if you are baptized. I bet you're going to learn a few things anyway. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what different people in different churches mean when they talk about baptism. Whether they are historically misinformed or just different from us or in some cases flat out heretical. Um, How they go about baptism themselves. And finally, we'll contrast with why we do baptism the way we do. Why Why Baptists do baptisms the way we do. So first off, you might have noticed in your own understanding of baptism that baptism is a pretty broad range of things or it means a broad range of things to a broad range of people and well if you haven't noticed that then uh, i'm about to save you some confusion because you'll encounter that later on because if your friend invites you to come along to their uncle's baptism for example you could actually be witnessing a variety of different things you could be um... witnessing a fully grown man being uh, tastefully drizzled with holy water once and for all. You could be a, witnessing a newborn baby in a family with interesting age differentials being stripped and dipped um, with the expectation that 13 years later he'll come back around and countersign on that baptism um, to ratify his parents' decision to do so. So we're dealing with quite a few variables in the field of baptism. So right up top on our little list of three, I've got how, why, And who? Right up top, we have immersion or sprinkling. Now, while all churches seem to agree that baptism needs to involve water to be legitimate, uh, we can't for the life of us agree on how much to use. Now, you're probably familiar with immersion if you've been to this church a few times, particularly if you're here this morning, the full dunking of someone under the water in the baptistry, like we have behind the screen here. Some denominations are more restrained in their water use and they go for a mere sprinkling of a handful of water over the crown of the saint in question still others seem to split the difference and they recognize that baptism needs more than that so they'll insist that you wade out into a body of water about up to your waist and then pour a cup of water over your head which seems less like a theological position and more like a fear to commit to either side of the question that's the how so what about the why to some christians baptism is merely a symbol of what is spiritually True, the truth is that Jesus has saved us from the grip of death by his death and resurrection. The metaphor that we have died and been raised with Jesus is a powerful metaphor and a symbol that is used. And the symbol of going down into the water and back up again symbolizes that in the life of a new son or daughter of God. If it's a symbol, it's a mechanism to communicate truth through generations. But not an actual literal saving act. And if you had a heart attack and died on your way to the baptistry, it wouldn't matter one whit to the spiritual reality of whether or not you were a child of God. You were one with Christ the moment you took him as savior. Or or it's a seal in the same way that circumcision was a seal in the Old Testament. It's a way of spiritually locking people into the body of God's people. And if you don't do it, then you are not locked into the body of God's people. That's what the idea of the seal is, not what actually saves you, although the most people who believe in baptism as a seal would say these things tend to happen simultaneously um, but that sealing the covenant, uh, sealing you or your family into the covenant is what happens during the moment of baptism. It does mark the moment you stop being a lonely sinner and start being a member of God's holy people. And in that case, if you had a heart attack and died on the way to the baptistry, that should raise serious questions about how much God wanted you in the kingdom anyway. (laughs) Or alternatively, it's actually the thing we do to affect the salvation that Jesus won for us. Some churches would say that baptism is an instrument God uses to actually redeem someone from some or all of their sin. And in some measure it relies upon people actually doing the ritual itself, performing the baptism and participating in it. And if you had a heart attack and died on the way, or had a heart attack on the way to that baptistry, while someone's on the phone to the ambulance, someone else will be on the phone to the priest being talked through an emergency baptism to see if they can squeak you in before the curtain falls these are pretty radically different views of baptism and so it's worth thinking about and finally who who is baptized many churches see baptism as directed by the faith of the believer and therefore baptism is for believers they need consent to be baptized other denominations see baptism as directed by the faith of the family that the baptized belongs to and baptism is a good and responsible duty of the parents raising up a child in that new covenant again like circumcision with the jews before there are other variables these are the major ones Um, but they can happen in any interesting combinations and depending on how you read different parts of scripture they tend to occur in those combinations so let's take a stroll um, through some examples as i take you on a tour through baptism a world of excitement and discovery Um, our first stop on this tour to a baptism that doesn't really happen so much anymore, but surely had an impressive heyday um, when the franchise was young. When you hear the term repent and sin no more, are you happy to repent, but a little worried about your capacity to sin no more? If so, deathbed baptism is for you. As the name suggests, it's a practice of waiting until the last moment to possibly get baptized, to wash away the largest possible amount of sin, and give you the least possible time to get your grubby fingerprints all over your soul right after Jesus has gone and cleaned it for you. His picture is a rendition of the last hours of the Roman Emperor Constantine around 337 AD. He's an important figure in Christian history because he's the Roman Emperor who flipped the switch to decide the Roman Empire was going to stop martyring Christians um, because it wasn't really getting them anywhere. Some scholars debate whether or not he was really Christian. Um, But Constantine stopped the persecution of Christians. He forbade the Jews from um, punishing Jewish converts to Christianity, and he called the Council of Nicaea, from which we get the Nicene Creed, a foundational document of the early church. But that creed includes the line, we affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And the early church took that line very literalistically. Constantine did not believe he could be emperor without a couple of immoral whoopsies along the way. And so, like many others at the time, he waited for the time of his death to be baptized so that he could go into the afterlife, afterlife freshly washed from sin without having the time to mess it up. So this view of baptism holds that uh, you only get baptized once, and that's good, but that baptism's purpose is actually, literally, to wash away your sins. And that is to say, wash away your past sins. And any sins you rack up after that point You'll have to pay off in some kind of punishment after death. An idea that doesn't actually occur in scripture, but became developed into the idea of purgatory later on in the church. And then was rejected by Protestants, Um, rightfully so. As you can see, this is why it leads to deathbed baptism. Who wants to pay off their own sins if you can just time the thing right? If you can thread the needle and really get it done at the last moment. It's a very literalistic idea of baptism washing away actual sins. So the bottom line for this view is that baptism is how God washes away a believer's sins. Unfortunately, people don't much subscribe to that one anymore. But, I hear you say, what if I want the benefits of being baptized into the kingdom of God without the burden of living a life of obedience to God, but also without the need to um, have that precise last-minute timing or risk eternity in hell? Well, friend, you need baptism for the dead. Minister was too late to your deathbed. Well, if you can baptize dead people, it's never too late. This is a practice the Bible never endorses. Uh, Paul mentions it in the letter to the Corinthians as something that the Corinthians seem to have been doing, but we don't get a lot of detail about. He doesn't instruct people to do it, um, but he doesn't treat it in the letter as anything more than a kind of an eccentricity he was willing to tolerate to make a greater point. Today, though, the, uh, the Mormons do perform baptism for the dead, and this is a Mormon baptismal font, if you were wondering, a baptismal font, I should say, if you're wondering. It's styled um, as the sea on the back of the 12 bulls, a description of the, the um, baptismal font um, or washing basin in the, in the Temple of Solomon. Um, and the Mormons are not our brothers and sisters in Christ, sadly. They have a radical misunderstanding of who Jesus is, but they appear to practice baptism something like the Corinthian church did so the idea for this one is that you are baptized as your point of entry into your union with God that's when your your covenant of faith begins that's where you go from being a sinner into being a child of God good so far more or less now if you have the belief that baptism is the literal moment in time when you become redeemed You run into a moral problem here. What about those people who never have a chance to get baptized, or who have a heart attack on the way to the baptistry? Doesn't it seem unfair of God to not provide them with a chance to be redeemed as well? Well, baptism for the dead gets around this problem by giving you the uh, ability to give a ceremonial name to a relative of a uh, deceased person and give them an extra baptism on their behalf. The idea being that we can sort of trust the angels to forward the appropriate paperwork in the afterlife to your poor uncle posthumously so he can decide then if he wants to follow Jesus and retroactively gain the benefits of that baptism. This is not far removed from that idea that the Catholics still hold about purgatory and indulgences being uh, purchased to pay off time for your loved ones in purgatory. Not very different, in fact, from the way that Buddhists in Thailand will sometimes spend time as a monk to pay off their ancestors' karma. But the bottom line for this idea is that baptism is how God begins a renewed relationship with someone. And so if God is going to have a renewed relationship with someone who's already died, they need some kind of workaround to make baptism available for the dead. Now, both deathbed baptism and baptism for the dead are, if not outright heretical, definitely super weird ideas of baptism. And we don't recognize them as valid in the modern church. But modern churches nonetheless still radically vary in the ways they do baptism. So take Pentecostal baptism, for example. Their baptisms look the same as ours on the surface. Ha, ha, ha. Um, surface, baptism. There you go, all right. Um, they're performed by believers. Oh, b- b- performed by believers. Well, let's hope so. Um, performed by and for believers. They're performed um, by immersion. They're a little more exuberant than ours, to be fair, but our Pentecostal brothers and sisters usually are. It's part of their charm. But the Pentecostal idea of baptism is a broader idea of three baptisms. They believe that you are baptized, metaphorically, into the body of believers. So when Paul talks about you were baptized into Christ's death, um, that's what he means. And you are also baptized as a public symbol, separating Uh, celebrating that first baptism. So those are your first two baptisms. You join the people of God. You go through a public baptism ceremony. That's two so far. But they further believe that um, then the Holy Spirit will come to dwell on you at a later time. And there's a moment in which the Spirit is poured out on you, like at Pentecost, when you experience a welling up of passion and love and awe and spiritual gifting. That the Pentecostals would say is the third baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talked about you might be baptized in the spirit long before you are baptized in water both may happen at the same time that would be very exciting indeed but the bottom line for our Pentecostal brothers and sisters is that baptism is a way to mark our progress and our walk with God from believer to a confessing believer to a spirit filled believer it's a little bit more exciting than we like our baptisms Um, how about a denomination that's a little more sedate Presbyterian baptisms. There we go, completely on the other end of the Christian spectrum, our Presbyterian cousins have a very different understanding of baptism again, to the point where if I may use the Australian theological student slang for a minute, if you were baptized as a penty and then later became a bapo, we would call that good enough. But prezies typically baptize their infants, and so a Prezi becomes a bapo, that baptism is not good enough. It's not evil or anything, it's just not what we'd say a baptism is. And that Prezi would have to go through baptism again to become a Bapo. Make sense? But <laughs> <For> Presbyterians, <laughs> baptism is a sign and a seal of their entry into the covenant with God. It takes place um, takes the place that circumcision had in God's covenant with the Jews. And so it's uh, performed on their infants as a way of sealing them into the covenant of God under the spiritual guardianship of their parents. The family, particularly the father, is seen as a kind of a spiritual covering over which the children step out of when they reach the age of reason, at which point they're accountable for their own faith. Now, of course, adults who come to faith, who are baptized by pouring in the Presbyterian church, so those baptisms look more like ours. So you see what I mean when I say there's a world of excitement and discovery and strangeness to be found here in baptism. But the bottom line for these guys is baptism is how God seals us into a covenantal relationship with him. Now on the subject of baptizing babies, I like this picture because it kind of looks like the baby is some kind of novelty water jug and they're actually using it to fill the baptismal font. But as you can see, it's not unlike the one before. That you've got infant baptism, pouring of water over the head of the child, um, superficially similar to the prezies, but don't count on anything being that simple. For the Catholics, baptism is washing you clean from your original sin, from the sin that you inherit from Adam and Eve. That's the sin you are born with on the account of being human. So you want that one dealt with right away. So baptism washes that clean through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But once you hit the age of reason, once you're accountable for your own faith, you have to make your own decisions and then you have your confirmation. That's when you sign off on that baptism. Yes, I agree, Mum and dad, I will follow Jesus. That's when you have to start worrying about the sins you rack up on your own without any help from Adam and Eve. And those you have to wash away with regular repentance and confession. So like with the Brezies, adult converts require baptism too and those baptisms look a lot more like ours but the bottom line here is that for the Catholics baptism is how God frees us from Adam's sin Christ's forgiveness is for all our sins in the Catholic perspective it comes first from baptism for the original sin and then from faithfully discharging our Christian duty living in repentance and confession and last but not least proper baptism also known as Baptist baptism. I asked at the start of this why Baptists are called Baptists. Really, it's because Baptists believe in a radical simplification of the ideas about baptism and that um, rely heavily on church tradition or stray from the ideas that each of us individually and personally are accountable to God for our sins. The idea that we have to confess through a priest for repentance, we don't like that. Jesus died so that we could confess to God directly. He is directly our Lord. The idea that our family provides a spiritual covering for us until we're old enough, still don't quite like that. The message of redemption is ultimately for sinners to hear and respond to. The question of what happens with babies who are too young to understand the gospel is an interesting and important one theologically, but it's not what baptism is dealing with. Baptists believe above all things in the direct lordship of our Savior Jesus Christ over our lives and baptism is how we celebrate that so for us it's a symbol of spiritual resurrection and a personal but not private declaration of obedience to Jesus who has already saved you before you come to the baptismal font bottom line baptism is how God's people celebrate commitment to God Now, all of those alternative views of baptism are theologically interesting, and I would love to talk about them if you have a question or a comment after this. But I do believe that we Baptists have good grounds to believe we are performing baptism in the most faithful interpretation of Scripture. So here's the detail on what Baptists believe. hope that's big enough to read. First, baptism is by immersion. All of the discussion about whether baptism is by sprinkling or immersion um, That comes from passages like this one. And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water and that at that moment, heaven was opened and this, he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. Now the word baptize means immersing in water, but can also mean simply to ceremonially wash. So there's some wiggle room there for interpretation. But the plainest reading of the text here makes it sound like Jesus was in the Jordan deep enough for it to matter because he had to come up out of the water. And uh, the Jewish rituals of washing involved being immersed in water, and that's the practice from which baptism was derived. Now, is it possible to say that this passage means that Jesus waded into the water and then got sprinkled? Yes, at a stretch. But the image of going down into the grave and then coming up again is really only complete by immersion. So baptism is by immersion. Number two, baptism is a symbol. It does not save us from our sins. Jesus does that. It does not seal us into the new covenant. Jesus does that. Discussion about how this works out comes from a tension between passages like these two. First, we've got Acts 2.38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit now a passage like that can worry people baptized for the forgiveness of sins seems pretty straightforward sounds like you are baptized and then your sins are forgiven and the alternative reading that you are baptized for the forgiveness of sins as a response to the forgiveness of sins in the same way that you might take a panadol for a headache rather than trying to induce a headache well it works but it's not the plainest reading of the text and if that were the only one only passage you were reading on the subject it would be hard to get away from the idea that baptism is what saved you. But then you hit a verse like this with Jesus and the thief on the cross. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. So Jesus clearly promises this guy forgiveness for his sins. And he certainly does not have the time to get baptized when we read scripture we have a duty to understand it in its full context and for the message of salvation through faith alone for that to to make sense in the full body of scripture it doesn't make sense of a physical act on our part the thing that salvation depends on baptism has to be a response to forgiveness of sins It is a symbol and number three baptism is for believers I understand the, the power on the, in the symbolism of baptizing children into the covenant of God. We do baby dedications for the same reason. But baptism is a response to repentance, as we just read in Acts 2:38, among many other verses. And if the command to repent comes, um, or if the repent, command to baptize comes after the command to repent, how baby going to do that? They can't. The challenge for this comes from a couple of verses like Acts 16.33. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his household were baptized. Now, Scripture never talks directly about baptizing infants, but you can make the claim that it's reasonable to say that in the many households that are baptized throughout Acts, that some of them would contain infants, and the whole household must contain those infants as well and since whole households are baptized often enough in Acts, you might see some babies in that mix of baptism. So you can see how the Presbyterians, or the Prezies, as we affectionately call them, get the idea of the family being the spiritual cover over the children. But there is no passage in the Bible that features infant baptism. And the command to be baptized comes after the command to repent. It just doesn't seem like a clear reading of Scripture. Baptism is for believers. so. That's our tour of baptism. Now you know why it is a core feature of the Baptist church. Now despite the fact that amusingly there's lots of denominations and some cults that have a higher, more spiritual view of baptism that we have, we certainly don't have the lowest. Some groups like the Salvation Army and the Quakers, they don't do baptism at all. The denomination Salvation Army, of course, not the charity, although they're kind of intertwined. They look at the ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper and think that the confusion about whether or not those things save or are required to be a real follower of Jesus is more trouble than it's worth and has become something like an idol in the church. They would say Christianity is about faith not tradition so they do away with those things altogether. So it's a fair to ask this big question then, is baptism required to be a faithful Christian? and the answer the Baptists have had for as long as Baptists have been around is no, baptism is symbolic, it's traditional, it's obedient but it is not required plenty of faithful salvos and Quakers did not get baptized plenty of faithful Baptists refused to get baptized but it would be dishonest to present baptism as it would be dishonest to represent baptism as mandatory to be saved or it would be a valued part of the kingdom But Our symbols are important. And so what are you so afraid of? Symbols are how we transmit the living action of our faith from one generation to the next. And part of how we display it to the world. And while God doesn't need you to prove anything to him, he doesn't need you to do anything to activate his saving grace on your life besides merely repenting and calling him Lord. Baptism is a way to prove something about your faith to yourself among others. It stops it from being all in your head, just a series of decisions that you've made and then could theoretically unmake at some time. Once you go through the waters of baptism and out the other side, you've not just thought the right thoughts, you've actually taken some real physical steps in faith. Symbols are important and powerful. And we shouldn't be so timid as to shy away from a public declaration of our faith on the grounds that it's technically not required for salvation. Jesus commands us to be baptized. And if we can't obey him in front of a crowd of our loving and cheering church family, how can we expect to have the courage to obey him in a world that sometimes hates us and hurts us for our faith? This is the example that Jesus set for us. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented in Matthew 3, 13 to 15. Jesus obviously did not need to be baptized. He had less reason to be baptized than anyone else did, since we do it as obedience to Jesus, among other things. John recognizes this. He says, why are you coming to me for baptism? What am I going to possibly do for you, Lord? You have nothing to repent for, nothing to be saved from. The action for Christ is utterly symbolic, and it's a symbol of what he does for us. And Jesus says, let it be so now. It's proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so when we're saved by the gospel of grace, and we know that Jesus died and rose to save us and deliver us, we commit our lives to living righteously fulfilling all righteousness and Jesus shows us that baptism is a point of obedience and fulfillment of that righteousness that's something that we should all be embracing in our lives and that is something worth celebrating every time someone takes that step in this church so let's pray father God we thank you for the saving grace of your son And as we move towards Easter, we're reminded again how selflessly and generously He offered Himself up to be slain for our gain, and how He rose from the dead to reveal the promise of eternal life. We thank You that You make it possible for us to have that forgiveness and redemption by no work of our own, but entirely by grace. We thank You that You've shown us the way to live righteously in light of that salvation. And for the members of this church, Lord, who need to be baptized, give them the courage to obey that command so that we can celebrate their obedience together. For those of us who have already been baptized, Lord, give us the clarity and insight to see how we might better still obey you with every step we take. Teach us, Lord, through the spirit you've given us. And we trust that you will show us the way to live that fulfills all righteousness. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.